I'd say an overall takeaway here is just that there we're in a period of pretty highly competitive national elections, but the number of states that are competitive is really not. If you go back to 60, the Kennedy-Nixon race or Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford in 1976, those are very competitive national elections where also a lot of the states are really competitive. And we're in an era now, and, and this isn't just true for 2024, it's been true in past close elections too, where a lot of the states just aren't really that competitive. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong Lee. And I'm Kyle Kondik. So Kyle, this week you put out your first electoral college ratings for the 2024 presidential election. And as it stands now, it looks like fewer states than ever could pick the next president. In 2020, it came down to Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. For 2024, as your rating stands stand now, it will likely come down to just Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin, uh, which are rated as toss-ups, and then some other states that are that are lean. So we can talk about those. But I wonder um, if you can talk a little bit more about your thinking about the states that you rated as toss-ups. Yeah, I mean, you know, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia are pretty natural to get a toss-up rating to start this election cycle. They were all decided by less than a point in uh, in twenty twenty and. You know, if Donald Trump had won those states and everything else had been the same, it would the election actually would have been a 269 to 269 tie um, that actually would have probably resolved, almost certainly resolved in the Republicans' favor, given the way that, um, uh, you know, an inconclusive electoral college result is uh, that, that the tie is broken in, in the U.S. House. It's based on um, uh, uh, the actual state delegation. Basically, each of the 50 state delegations get a single vote in a tie break scenario. And so even though Democrats controlled the House majority back then, um, Republicans controlled enough state delegations to, you know, to win that situation. Now we haven't seen that happen since 1824, so who knows how it would actually function in practice? But we we know who would who would have the the power in that sort of situation. Um, and uh, you know, we we didn't really took take the midterm results into account in in large part because um, you know midterms and presidential elections are just different. The turnout patterns are different. You know, more people show up in the presidential, et cetera. Um, but you know, we think those are you know three of the key key states. And then we threw Nevada in there too, even though it's voted Democratic in the last four presidential elections. Um, it's been, get, been getting closer over time. There's been, the Democrats have been falling off a little bit in Las Vegas, which is where Clark County is, which casts like two thirds or a little bit more of the statewide vote. And so we think that that state is competitive enough, competitive enough to warrant a, a, a toss up rating. But, you know, I'd say an overall takeaway here is just that, um, you know, there we're in a period of pretty highly competitive national elections, but um, the number of states that are competitive is really not all that high, you know, particularly if you go back to like 1960, the Kennedy-Nixon race or Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford in 1976. Those are very competitive national elections where also a lot of the states are really competitive. And we're in an era now, and, and this isn't just true for 2024, it's been true in past close elections too, where, you know, a lot of the states just aren't really that competitive. Ron Brownstein had um, a really good statistic that 80% of states have actually voted the same way in at least the past four presidential elections. Um, and that is a level of consistency that has been unmatched through throughout the 20th century. So we're, we're seeing that as likely to play out again in 2024. Even some of the states that have changed over the last four elections, they've kind of changed in such a way that... Uh, they, they're not even really that competitive, even though they've changed. Like Ohio and Iowa, for instance, went from voting for Obama twice to voting for Trump twice. And um, they're not really in the, the, the true battleground uh, conversation. So 
you know, there, there aren't that many states changing sides. And to the extent that they are, it may be that sort of like, uh, you know, ships passing in the night, you know, they're just like, uh, they're, you know, they're going opposite directions and they're going to continue going that way. Yes. And I think one of the things you noted in your pieces is, is the way that Ohio, Florida, Iowa and Indiana have really trended Republicans since 2008, especially. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Florida is one of those states that I think, you know, historically speaking, you would have thought of as being like kind of a true toss up state. And it, it wasn't like it was that big of a blowout in 2020. I mean, it was um, Trump won the state by about three point four points, roughly. Um, but, you know, it it moved a few points to the right as the rest of the nation was moving, you know, a couple of points toward the Democrats and and the trend lines in Florida just don't seem particularly good for uh, for Democrats at this point. So some of our readers have observed that um, Democrats need to win just one of Arizona, Georgia, Nevada or Wisconsin if these ratings hold. But I wonder if you can speak about the path to winning for both Republicans and Democrats. Um. You know, it does seem likely that the eventual winner probably would win two of the three of Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Um, now, you know, there are other competitive states here. You know, we have North Carolina's leans Republican. You know, that was only voted for Trump by a little more than a point. Um, we have Pennsylvania's leans Democratic. That only voted for Biden by by a little more than a point. So, you know, we are being somewhat aggressive in some of these um, in some of these ratings. Although we, do, you know, we do think it's think think those ratings are, are warranted at least to start off here. Um, but you know, I would really, I'd really focus on these, you know, seven states really that the ones that were decided by less than three points in, in 2020. So, um, the four toss up states we mentioned, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Wisconsin, and then Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, uh, and, and, and North Carolina, you know, there are other states that, uh, you know, we've, we've got New Hampshire as leans democratic, um, you know, of all our leaning states, that's one that's probably the closest to being likely, but it's also a state that Trump almost won in 2016. And. Um, it's sort of known for, for swinging a lot from election to election. Um, but, but again, you know, we're just, we're, we're really focused on a, a relatively small number of states. And then you kind of, you know, you sort of want to see over the course of the, the election cycle, you know, do the sort of new states come into play. Also, you know, we're, we're sort of assuming Biden versus Trump right now. If it's not Biden versus Trump, that may have some effect on um, the competitive battleground. Uh, you know, you'd expect a lot of continuity and, you know, in elections with Trump on the ballot, um, you know, and, and so it's, I think it'd just be a lot like 16 and 20. Um, but, you know, if Trump doesn't get nominated or maybe Biden is, is not the nominee for whatever reason, you know, maybe that shuffles things a little bit. So you mentioned um, and already sort of addressed this in your previous response, um, but both New Hampshire and Pennsylvania are in the leans category. But we specifically had a reader question about why New Hampshire and Pennsylvania were rated similarly. Yeah, I mean, look, I could I could see why someone might think that they should be in different columns. Um, you know, I mean, Michigan's in that column, too. You know, Michigan is probably, you know, if you're thinking about the pecking order in terms of the state's likeliest to flip. Um, you know, Pennsylvania is probably first, Michigan's probably second, New Hampshire's probably third. Um, but again, you know, New Hampshire, again, you know, did almost vote for Trump in 2016. Um, it's a, you know, again, it's a state that is been, been pretty fluid, um, over, over the course of time. Uh, you know, certainly I think if the Republicans are winning New Hampshire, they're, they're winning the election. Um, although I think I'd probably say that about Pennsylvania and Michigan as well. Um, although maybe there's some sort of strange break in which, you know, maybe the Democrats do really well in the Sun Belt, but they, uh, you know, they they lose ground in the, you know, in the sort of the, the Midwest Great Lakes states. Um, I always struggle with where to put Pennsylvania because politically it's kind of similar to the Midwest, but it's not actually part of the Midwest. Uh, so you know, it's a, a constant struggle. But um, uh, you know, so so yeah, I, I, again, I could I could see that. 
Um, and, you know, may, maybe, uh, maybe over the course of the cycle, you know, we get enough evidence that, you know, New Hampshire, maybe, maybe it goes to the likely column, but, you know, again, these, this is a starting point. Um, and, uh, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be movement here, um, over the, over the course of the cycle, but we thought this was, this was where we wanted to, uh, where we wanted to start. So Maine and Nebraska are two states that award electoral votes at the congressional district level, um, and they have unique ratings. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about their ratings. But we also received a reader question asking your thoughts about how ratings might change if all the states adopted awarding electoral votes at the congressional district level. So in um, in 2020, I believe off the top of my head that, that, that um, Biden did end up winning um, a majority of the congressional districts. I think under the new map, it's something like it was something like 223 or 224 districts. And um, so that I think would translate. I mean, you have to take into account the statewide. Um, you know, each state has effectively two statewide electoral votes, and 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 uh, or rather, let me take a step back here. So the electoral college allocation is one electoral vote for each congressional district the state has, and then two additional ones to account for its two senators. So that's how you get 435 for all the House members, 100 for all the senators, and then three additional ones for the District of Columbia, which doesn't actually have members of, of you know, voting member of the House, doesn't have U.S. senators, but it is represented in the Electoral College. Um, so uh, um, I think I think Biden would still have won in 2020, although it would have been fairly close. And like in um, in 2012, um, that was when sort of the, the, the peak, I think, of sort of like Republican House gerrymandering power. Um, the, uh, uh, Mitt Romney won a fairly, you know, won, won, won a majority of the house districts despite losing the election by four points nationally. Um, the house is not that gerrymandered now. Um, you know, the median house seat is still like a couple points to the right of the, of the nation. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I think it'd probably be, I mean, I think if that change were made, it probably would be better for, um, Republicans, but, but not as, not as dramatically so as maybe like a dozen years ago. In your new Electoral College ratings, Texas has a likely R rating. Um, you've noted in your previous series um, that, and, and I'll drop a, a link in the notes for listeners, but um, in your in your fantastic series about how the other half votes, that there's actually a growing Democratic trend in Texas um, between the in the most populous counties relative to the least populous counties. We've also had a lot of readers from Texas weigh in on the electoral college ratings um, and and comment on the Democratic trend in Texas. But given the populations of the most and least county, least populous counties, and given changes that might occur, you know, to nominees of their party, are you thinking about any scenarios that might change your ratings in Texas? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we'll be, you know, Texas is, I think of the states we have rated likely Republican, that's probably the one that that I could most easily imagine being in the leans column. I guess Florida would probably be the other one. Um, you know, one one comment I think I saw in reaction to this was that, oh, well, you know, uh, New Hampshire voted for Biden by seven, uh, but, you know, Texas voted for Trump by only five and a half. But you got to, th- I think you got to think about it, not just in terms of the actual margin, but how the margin relates to the the national margin, and so mm. you know Biden won the national popular vote by four and a half. So New Hampshire was only like two or three points to the left of the nation. Texas was like ten points to the right of the nation. So you know you got to you got to sort of think about it that way. Now um, is is Texas becoming more competitive over time? Yeah, absolutely. You know Romney won it by um, Romney won it by I think sixteen or seventeen points. Trump only won it by about five and a half. 
Um, and, you know, the national popular vote margin was about the same in both those elections. So relative to the nation, Texas has definitely gotten more competitive. But I just don't know if the cake is quite baked there yet. Um, and, uh, yeah, the Democrats have made a lot of progress in the big urban areas, um, but they're still getting, you know, blown out in the rural areas. Um, there has been a little bit of a Republican um, shift in some heavily Latino areas in South Texas. That's not a huge portion of the statewide vote, but it is notable when you're trying to make the math work statewide. Um, so anyway, that's the, you know, that's the reasoning for, uh, you know, for Texas being likely Republican, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things I, th I think you probably could say about the ratings is that um, we're, we're, we're in some ways giving the benefit of the doubt to both party or to either party in certain states. Like, Pennsylvania, you know, is, 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 is maybe a little bit of benefit of the doubt to the, to the Democrats, you know, North Carolina being leans are might be benefit of the doubt to the Republicans. Um, you know, Texas it likely are, might be benefit of the doubt to the Republicans. Um, you know, so there's sort of a balance here going on. And again, I understand it. You know, we, we try to go with, uh, what we thought our best judgment was, but you know, there's always going to be, um, people who think otherwise. And, and again, we, we also, will be changing these ratings, I'm sure, as the, you know, as the cycle goes along. I think another observation with regards to where the ratings are is, you know, that since Donald Trump has emerged, um, you know, as as a major figure um, and and the head of the Republican Party, that has pre-solidified and um, further polarized the coalitions among the parties. Do you see any potential movement in terms of the partisan coalitions looking ahead to 2024? I think this sort of basic trajectory of things is what we've come to become familiar with in like the Trump years with the, you know, kind of white college graduates sort of moving more toward the Democrats, um, white working class voters moving more toward the Republicans. Um, there's a little bit of instability in the, you know, the non-white, um, you know, voting coalition where still collectively a pretty democratic block. There was some erosion there in 2020. Um, you know, maybe that, maybe we see that, maybe we see all these trends continue in 2024, but I think those sort of basic building blocks are, you know, going to be you know, sort of how we look at the electorate. And again, this map is sort of based on our current understanding of, of sort of the, these coalitions and how they performed in 2016 and 2020. But that's why I say, you know, if it, if it's not Biden versus Trump again, maybe that's where you see a little bit of change, just like, you know, the, the change from Romney to Trump and Obama to Clinton from 2012 to 2016, you know, it had a fairly dramatic effect on how some of these states perform, you know, again, like states like Iowa and Ohio went from being, you know, pretty reflective of the national vote, um, in the case of Iowa, even being a little bit democratic leaning, um, to being, you know, pr pr uh, fairly Republican leaning, um, and, you know, states like Virginia and Colorado zoomed to the left in that, in that point, you know, like Colorado, we have a safe democratic and I, wouldn't have thought that 10 years ago, um, you know, Virginia is likely democratic, you know, so those states were like real battleground prizes in, uh, in 2012 that, that really are not, you know, are, are not huge, uh, um, are not huge battlegrounds in this election. And, you know, there's, there's, there's always change going on. Um, it's just that we'd probably expect there to be less change if it's a rematch than if it's a, um, than if it's a different sort of matchup. So any, Final conclusions. I, I've been thinking a lot about the implications of the new ratings just for how we might look ahead toward um, litigation. Um, you know, we, we've seen an increase in litigation, including by both of the political parties, the RNC and the DNC. 
focusing on, you know, what might happen in these seven sort of narrowly contested states and especially the four. And, and just thinking about what needs to be done to, for me, thinking about what needs to be done to bolster election administration in those states. Um, but also just, you know, for researchers thinking about, you know, where we're likely to see misinformation being targeted or, or disinformation. But do you have any sort of um, takeaways or implications looking at the map, looking at into 2024? I mean, some of the, you know, hotter kind of down ballot races in 2022 were some of these secretary of state races and some of the states we've talked about, like Arizona and, and uh, Nevada, um, you know, Georgia, maybe a little bit different story where more of the action there was in the primary. But it, it seemed like, um, you know, some of the kind of election denying Republicans ended up losing in some of those places. Brad Raffensperger, Republican, got reelected in Georgia. Um, you know, he's known as being sort of an opponent of, you know, uh, Donald Trump's you know bogus claims about the 2020 election. Um, you know, the, the party of the Wisconsin Supreme Court changed from, uh, it went from a four, three Republican majority, four, three Democratic majority. Um, you know, so those are some of the players kind of to think about in these, um, uh, election administration fights. You know, you also just had this Morby Harper, um, uh, 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 court Supreme court ruling, which we've discussed on previous episodes. Um, but you know, I think there was some fear among some, particularly on the left that like a very expansive ruling in favor of this so-called independent state legislature theory could have maybe even empowered state legislatures to, you know, maybe counteract their own voters and send their own slate of electors or something to, um, the electoral college, uh, proceedings, you know, that doesn't seem like that, that, that happened. So that, that to me sort of diffused one of the, um, kind of potential election administration landmines for 2024. I mean, look there, when you've got these close races though, there are always going to be lawyers and there are always going to be disputes. And I don't, I don't necessarily blame people for doing that. Um, it's just that, um, sometimes the complaints, sometimes the, some complaints are better than others and the courts, the courts (laughs) courts exist to, to sort those things out. And, and I'd say some of the, you know, kind of real rabid conspiracy mongering folks didn't, uh, um, you know, aren't, aren't really going to be players in the, you know, these official proceedings. Yeah. And that's something we, we actually covered in the red ripple. We tried to weed out some of the, the litigation that was not well-grounded versus the ones that, you know, were, you know, that had more of a basis. Yeah. I mean, look, pretty clearly there were some people saying some fairly irresponsible and unsupported things about the 2020 election on, you know, on the Republican side. And, uh, you know, the, many of them ended up losing in the states that are going to be most important. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.